really are no little things. Everything is a big thing, every touch point, every interaction. And so the intentionality that you put behind it is really what defines what becomes your brand. It defines how those customers feel about you and whether or not they say, yeah, I'll roll the dice, maybe I'll find somebody else that's just as good or better or faster or cheaper. Or if they say, you know what? Like, no, I don't wanna go anywhere else because I know that someone cares about me. They care about me as a customer and they're gonna make sure that I'm taken care of. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. Welcome back to another episode of the Social Complex Podcast. This week, we have the master of the super fans. Brittany Hodak is an award-winning entrepreneur, author, and customer experience speaker who has delivered keynotes across the globe to organizations including American Express and the United Nations. She has worked with some of the world's biggest brands and entertainers, including Walmart, Disney, Katy Perry, and Dolly Parton. She founded and scaled an entertainment startup to eight figures before exiting and is the former chief experience officer of experience.com. Forbes has said of her debut book, Creating Superfans, which is out today, if you have customers, you need this book. And I could not agree more. Brittany is an exceptional guest, marketer, entrepreneur, brand builder, and guest speaker, I have to say. So let's dive into the world of superfans. But you know what, Brittany? I have good vibes about this. I have good vibes about you. And there's nothing scarier than stepping out of your comfort zone, especially when you got money, time, resource, brain power, all on the line. But I think that you're onto something. And I think that what you're creating is absolutely needed in the ecosystem of business books right now. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so funny. Like that was kind of the when I was talking to the publisher, like when I was pitching this book at the beginning, I was like, I want to write a business book that doesn't feel like a business book because like I think part of the reason that customer experience isn't more like widely talked about is because the people responsible for the customer experience aren't always the people who are out there reading business books because like they're not the C-suite. They're not entrepreneurs necessarily. They're just people who are like working at the company in charge of these experiences that customers have. So I was like, I want to write a book that anybody, whether they're 16 at their first job or like 75 on their 15th career can read this book and learn from it, but also feel like, oh, that was fun. Like I would read it again just because I enjoyed it versus this is homework or this is something yeah. that my boss is like making me read. No, absolutely. And I will say that looking through and reading the book, I'm in the middle of it now. And I definitely skimmed through because I was like, I need to make sure that I understand and can get into Brittany's brain a little bit because she has so much to share. She has so much wisdom. But I think that customer advocacy and experience is it almost like misses a layer, especially in like small to medium sized businesses. I think really small businesses get it and they do a phenomenal job with different touch points with their customers. And then really large organizations, 
again, great job. But the middle, like the meaty middle, just sometimes completely misses the mark. So as I was looking through and understanding a little bit more about your perspective and your take on it, and also the various entrepreneurial journeys that you have taken yourself, those that have also succeeded and where you've had some lessons, I just think that you condense it in a way that is so relatable to that wide audience of whether you're 16, you're 70, somewhere in the middle, anyone can really take a lot away from this book. Well, thank you for saying that because I I know that I'm a nerd. Like I geek out over customer experience. I think it is the most exciting thing in the world. Um, I know not everyone is as geeked about customer experience as I am, but I wanted to at least make it accessible enough to where it was exciting. I was like, maybe not everyone is gonna be obsessed with this idea of how can I create the most amazing experiences for my customers so that they become advocates. But if I can at least get people on board with like that as the goal, then things will be moving in the right direction. So before we get into it, I have to know, when was the first time that you would classify yourself as a super fan? I think I was born predisposed to be a super fan. Like I remember as a child being very drawn to certain brands. And it's so funny because now I have a two and a half year old and a five year old and seeing the world through their eyes and sort of the fandoms that we introduce to them versus the ones they self-select is, is so fascinating. But some of the earliest ones I remember are DuckTales. Like I was obsessed with DuckTales when I was like four, I guess. Um, and then also I would say My Little Pony was one that I was like, oh, I am like into this. And I, I remember being an advocate. Like I remember being at like preschool or the playground or with my cousins or whatever and saying like, what do you mean you don't like DuckTales? Like check out my Webby doll. Like you're, you're missing out. Like there's this guy, Uncle Scrooge, and he has this money pit and he like jumps in it. Like I, I remember wanting people in my life to have exposure to these things that were making my life better. So how would you classify a super fan? I know you go into it in the book, but for those who don't know, what's your classification? So I've got like a longer, more sort of academic definition in the book, but kind of the simplest way that I can say it is a super fan is a customer who creates more customers. They're someone who enjoy their experience with you so much that they're going to come back and they're going to tell their friends. So we've got people who are out there advocating. And I think one of your examples, your earliest example is with Matchbox 20 when you went to their concert and you were like obsessed and you loved their music and you, you heard about it through a friend and you were sharing it through friends. And I think that it's easy to think of like celebrity status almost as, you know, having super fans. How does that translate over into companies? You know, how are, how are these companies that are selling, you know, commodities or average Joe goods? How are they stepping into that space of super fandom without, you know, having to have like a, a concert? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And 
one of the keys to understanding the answer is the fact that we are living in an experience economy right now. Things are becoming more and more of commodities across every market because it's like lower barrier to entries than it's ever been. Like any teenager can put up a website in three hours that makes it look like it's like a multinational company with like their act together, right? Um, so where you've got to win, and I, I think you're, you, you hit the nail on the head before when you said a lot of this kind of gets lost in that meaty middle. It's people who maybe have grown from a solopreneur or a small business, and now they've got 25 or 35 employees, and they're just kind of triaging things and trying to keep their head above the water and trying to you know get enough new clients to make sure that payroll you know doesn't fall through. We can lose some of that focus on customer experience. So in an experience economy, people care about the way you make them feel. It's not just about the products and services you sell. It's how you make someone feel when they're engaging with you. And there are some brands that can make a customer feel something when they look at your logo, right? Disney, Apple, Amazon, Nike, like there are lots of examples out there. But until you reach that status, your brand is not your logo. Your brand is every interaction that your customers have with your employees. Every single employee is the brand. What your customers say to their friends when somebody says, how is that restaurant? How is that new retail store? How was that massage you got? How was that haircut? Like that is your brand. So to answer your question, the way that you create those super fan customers is by connecting your story to theirs in an authentic way that matters. I think one of the biggest threats to businesses today is apathy. There's just so much stuff competing for our attention all the time. Like no longer is your competitor just the other people who sell what you sell. It's Netflix, right? It's like the fact that somebody could just be like, eh, I'm going to just use my phone to watch a TV show rather than, you know, to shop or, or to look for somebody who provides the service. So connecting your story to your customer's story, making sure that every one of your employees is aligned around creating amazing experiences is the way you turn a customer into somebody who's like, yeah, that was fine. Maybe I'll use them again next time or maybe I won't to a customer who says, great, now I've got my solution. I've got the partner for, again, whatever it is that you're you're doing, you're selling. With that, the tricks of the trade when it comes to that customer experience and being able to have that touch point, I will say, your book, and when you sent it to me, you had a little lollipop, you had a little tchotchke, you had a handwritten note. And the minute that I got it, I was like, yes, Brittany gets it. Because of course, like we have this interview, I could have gotten the book, it would have been a great, you know, anchor for me to read through and have talking points. But the fact that your experience and your commitment to customer experience shines through with your practice, no matter how chaotic everything is in the small business land, it's amazing that you practice what you preach. And I think so many companies really fail to see those little acknowledgements of birthdays, of first touch points, of making a connection. So I think you've just done a phenomenal job with it. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about again and again throughout the book is there really are no little things. 
Like everything is a big thing. Everything is experience, every touch point, every interaction. And so the intentionality that you put behind it is really what defines what becomes your brand. It defines how those customers feel about you and whether or not they say, eh, I'll roll the dice. Maybe I'll find somebody else that's just as good or better or faster or cheaper. Or if they say, you know what? Like, no, I don't want to go anywhere else because I know that someone cares about me. They care about me as a customer and they're going to make sure that I'm taken care of. And we know that companies don't necessarily have, you know, pulses in and of themselves. It's the people (laughs) that make the pulse. So how do you create a culture where customer experience is at the center of what your team and your employees do? Oh, I love this question. So something that I wish more people understood, although I feel like over the past 18 months or so, it's, it's kind of come to the forefront in a way that's kind of jarring to people who maybe weren't paying attention, is the fact that if you want to create amazing experiences for your customers, you have to create amazing experiences for your employees. Your customer experience will never be better than your employee experience. It can't, it's impossible, it won't happen. So you've got to model that behavior at every level of the organization. You know, and this is again, like there's such a parallel to parenting of, you know, I'm reminded all the time that my children aren't just listening to the things I'm saying, they are watching what I do and they will see everything that I do. And, you know, sometimes the things that I wish they hadn't seen or heard, um, it's like kind of funny when I see them, you know, like say something they shouldn't or, or, or behave in a way that I'm like, Ooh, gotta watch that. But (laughs) like the same is true with your employees. Like it doesn't matter what you say, like your values can't just be posters on the wall that nobody ever looks at. Your employees are going to treat their peers and their customers the way that they are being treated by their manager, the way they're seeing their manager being treated by their manager, by the way they're, you know, seeing the things that play out in the press. If you're, you know, a publicly traded company, like how, uh, how is your board behaving? Like, what does the leadership dynamic look like? All of those things matter. So you have to model the behavior that you want your employees to show your customers within your organization. I think something too that we're seeing right now because as you're talking about this and you're talking about how your board is behaving, how your leaders are behaving, I would be remiss to not bring up Twitter right now because Twitter is the epitome of a company that is highly visible in flux and in a lot of change could come out on the other side in a, you know, fine light. But as we're in the thick of it, we're seeing some 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 craziness happen. What's your perspective there? Yeah, well, my perspective is, you know, I'm not surprised as many employees left as did, the ones who left voluntarily, because what do you want as an employee? You want stability. You want direction. You want to know that what you're doing matters. You want to know that, you know, you're sort of supporting this mission. If you think about employees of any company, you know, in a way, it's much harder to attract employees than it is to attract customers because customers are giving you money, great, fine, whatever. Employees are giving you their time. 
They're giving you their brain power. They're giving you their energy, their passions. That is so much more valuable than money. And we are way beyond the point where workers just want a paycheck. Yes, are some rungs of the economy where that is absolutely what people are focused on. But when we're talking about knowledge workers and, and higher level jobs, it's not just about a paycheck anymore. It's about a purpose. And if you're not giving your employees a purpose, they're going to go find a paycheck somewhere else where they can have a paycheck and a purpose. And I think right now that turmoil that's happening at Twitter is just a reminder that, you know, people value stability because it's one thing to kind of look from the outside and be like, oh, wow, like what crazy thing is Elon going to tweet today? Or like what crazy thing is going to happen next? But it's another thing to think about the fact that there are thousands of real people who right now are, you know, thinking things like, oh my gosh, I just started chemo. Like yeah. I can't lose my health insurance. What am I going to do? What's going to happen? Or my wife is pregnant or I'm pregnant. Like there are very real human dynamics at play. And that's part of why stability and transparency are so important to employees of any organization, regardless of the size or the kind of like media circus surrounding whatever the, you know, whatever the specifics may be. And empathy too. I, I think that there's so much of that lacking right now with the amount of layoffs that are happening and the remote culture that we have, you know, in a post 2020 world where, you know, people are getting laid off on like groups, zoom calls, or even just by email. And you're like, dang, that's even if you as an organization have to, unfortunately, you know, go through a reduction of staff, you know, reevaluating your costs and, have people go through layoffs, they're still your people. And, you know, one day you might not be in the situation anymore and you're going to be on the upswing and you might want to hire some of them back, but it almost feels like there's like short sightedness of just let's get this over with, let's get it done. And even if that means we're going to burn a few bridges along the way, like it's fine. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Everything you said is exactly spot on because, you know, it's kind of like, let's say you were in a relationship with somebody and it was, you know, there were like ups and downs. It was pretty good. It's whatever. And then at the end, there was like a, like, you know, they cheat on you. It's just like, you know, you know, set, set everything on fire, like, you know, horrible, like that's what you're going to remember. And that's what you're going to tell people. So yeah. now all of those former employees, when they're asked by a friend, by a family member, by a colleague about your company, six months from now, two years from now, five years from now, what do you think they're going to say? They're mm -hmm. going to say, you should never go work for this company. They do not care about their people. They'll tell you they do, but their values are not aligned with their actions. I got fired via Zoom. Yeah. And then if somebody is considering going to work for your organization or like three others, do you think that feedback from somebody is going to play a role? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Every single employee is an influencer. Every single employee has the potential to cost you future employees and future customers because of what they say. So I am constantly blown away by how many companies keep making this mistake over and over and over again. And it's exactly as you said, it's a lack of empathy. It's a lack of saying, you know, this is not about the position. This is about the person. Mm -hmm. And even though we're eliminating the position, we need to do it in a way that gives that person the same level of respect and empathy as they got when we hired them.
because yeah. it's really just an extension. Like offboarding is just an extension of your employees' journeys. And yes, I am like constantly blown away by how many people get that so wrong and then maybe don't even realize like they're paying those prices for years and potentially decades because of all of this ill will that they're creating out there and because of all of this buzz that they're creating, negative buzz about their brands. And let's throw a wrench in it by adding in social media to the mix. So when you're having layoffs oh, from the dot-com yes. bust, you're not worried about everybody and their mother on the internet talking about it. But now we're seeing, you know, even video recordings of people getting laid off. So we're getting like a front hand experience on what is happening in these calls and how people are really going through it and how they're processing and sharing their stories. What layer of complexity does that add for an organization when they're thinking about how they are, you know, I don't want to say controlling their image, but it, in a way it is, how are you, how are you putting your best foot forward knowing that that layer exists? Well, you're right. It is controlling your image and it's about managing, managing each of those relationships and the potential and the potential, um, you know, after effects of them, because you're right. It's, we live in a world where, we are seeing those things play out in real time and social media and just the way our brains are wired as humans, we make a lot of assumptions. When we see one thing, we assume that is representative of the whole. Like if we go into a restaurant and the hostess is rude, we're like, oh, that restaurant, everybody is so rude. Or we go into a retail store and somebody's amazing. We're like, oh, that brand is amazing. Like, oh my gosh, they took so much, you know, such great care of me. Every employee represents your brand. And just because of the way our brains work, we're hardwired to see one thing and make assumptions that we sort of like extrapolated out to other levels. So when you've got a company that maybe most people have never heard of, right? Let's say outside of your immediate sphere of your industry, you've got like a few hundred employees, people know you who need to know you, but then you've got, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans who don't. When you do something wrong, and get taken to task for it in the traditional media because it's caught on on social media, that becomes your reputation. That's like the only thing people know you for. And that can take years or decades for people to forget about. Because again, we're all busy. There's so much going on. Nobody's going to like check in two years later and be like, hey, I wonder if that company ever like reversed course and did better. They're just mm -hmm. not going to think about you again until someone says your name or you come up in conversation and they're going to be like, oh yeah, that company that hired, you know, all these people and then fired 600 of them via Zoom or whatever it was. So to answer your question, um, if you are faced with having to do a reduction in force, um, I would encourage you to think through the most empathetic way that you can do it. Um, how your soon-to-be former employees are going to feel at every step. They're going to have questions. They're going to be overwhelmed doing things like putting together information packets. It's not just the stuff that normally people get of like, you know, hey, here's your COBRA benefits and here's the information about, you know, rolling over your stocks, but also like, where's the best place to go tune up my resume? Is it okay for me to reach out to my manager to ask for a letter of a recommendation? Is it possible that this job could be a job again six months from now? And if so, would I be eligible for a rehire? Like all of those types of human things. And even if it takes an extra few days or an extra week for your HR team to put it together, then you have to do that. And I'm also a huge 
proponent of when you have to let someone go either for a cause or because of a reduction in force, it needs to be their manager. It's really unfair to employees to have somebody they barely know come in and let them go. Like that is sort of the coward's way out. Like if someone is on your team and you have made the decision either because of performance or because of economic issues that they are no longer on your team, you need to have, you know, the, the, the guts to say, Hey, I'm sorry, this is, this is where this part of this journey ends. And it's been a privilege working with you. And I wish all the best for you. Here are the things I'm prepared to do to help you as you navigate this new phase. Thank you for your contributions. And that comes back to your point about, you know, the experience, it, it, it's called customer experience, but also that starts with the, you know, employees that's living and breathing your values. You ever know, like that, that's exactly what it is. So aside from, you know, the, the sad part of it and that more negative side, the positive side of it, how can companies foster a culture that puts this customer experience first and how can they you know translate that through their organization so there's a quote i really love from albert einstein and he said not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts um, and I think he was talking about Instagram when he said it, but it's sort of <laughs> broadly, broadly applicable to not just Instagram. Um, and I think one of the things that we've seen over the past couple of decades is as it's become easier to track certain things, we've, we've come up in, in many organizations, like there's a misalignment between the things that really matter and the things that you're sort of giving an outweighed importance to just because it's easy to see on a dashboard or it's easy to look at and say like, oh, okay, we went from X to Y. And are metrics important? Of course they are. But if you say we are a customer-centered organization and we want every single one of the people on our service and support team to really dig in and help our customers and make them feel valued, but then you're telling those same support people you're being judged on how quickly every one of your phone calls ends and how many tickets you get through in a day, Yes. where do you think they're going to go? Are they going to go with like, oh, you've said we care about customers or I'm being compensated based on the number of tickets I close and how quickly I can get off one phone call and on to another phone call. So you've really got to look at what you're measuring and how what you're measuring says something to the people that are out there embodying your brand to all of your customers. That is so overlooked. Like That is the perfect example of what is so overlooked because especially being in digital media, we have access to all of this measurement and all these KPIs that we can track. And we can say, you know, we'll, we'll be seeing the growth of this, we'll be seeing the ebb and the flow of this. But the reality of it is that if you're not embodying your culture in the measurement that you have, you're missing out on, not just, not just missing out on understanding it, but also misaligning your entire organization. Yeah, and it's, you know, I am always a little bit, 
baffled when an organization is like, oh, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to hire all these people. We know what we want. We, we put through people through like rigorous interviews, just like seven rounds. You talk to 12 different people and then you finally get the job and the onboarding and training is sort of like, okay, now forget everything you thought you knew. This is how you do it. Like these are the scripts you should use. These are the processes that you follow. This is exactly how you handle all these situations. It's like you hire this person because of the unique human they are because of the background they have because of the insights they have because of you know the the judgment that you've seen them exhibit and then it's like you say okay like throw all that out the door we are now transforming you into an acme inc robot and we want acme inc robots to do things this way so you're sort of robbing some of that creativity and in a way like humanity from your employees and when you're not saying to them hey, I trust you to handle these situations the right way. Use your own judgment because you're going to handle 30 different things today and the right answer is going to be different 30 different times. So it's not like flip through the manual or like scroll through the screens and the prompts until you find the one that says like, here's how to do this for Miss Johnson. It's use your best judgment. Know that the outcome needs to be Miss Johnson feels great about the way you handled it and she wants to come back here and give us money again go make that happen. Like you can figure out the path and we've given you guardrails, but we haven't given you blinders. Yeah. And I, that too, I feel like a lot of the companies, especially large scale organizations are outsourcing a lot of their customer support and yes. they're using these third party companies or, you know, contractors to be able to fit the demand that they have. They don't have them in house. How does an external team shift how companies should be approaching this factor? I am a huge, huge proponent of not outsourcing your support team and not outsourcing your sales team. That's another thing. Like so many companies now are partnering with these outbound sales companies that will call and say, you know, hey, I'm calling from... Verizon or, hey, I'm calling from Xfinity and they're not. It's like a third party person who uh, does not frankly care about that brand or its reputation because they're just trying to get a commission check. So anytime it is avoidable, um, you should have your service and support agents in-house and all of the best companies do it, right? There are so many examples. I talk about Chewy in the book, specifically their call center and some of the intentional decisions that they've made um, to control that brand. But I think one of the things that people get wrong is they look at they look at call centers as as a cost center, and they mm -hmm. say, "Oh, this is such an expense." Versus saying, "If we're smart about this, if we're intentional, if we hire really great people, this is how we create our super fans. This is how we turn." a one-time customer into a repeat customer. This is how we turn those loyal customers into advocates. This is how we grow our brand because that's the experience. It's so much easier to create a memorable, meaningful experience when two humans are talking than when one human is on a device clicking buttons. Yeah. And so many companies are short-sighted um, and they say, oh, well, you know, we're going to save 30% by offshoring this or outsourcing this, not thinking about the fact that what they're really doing is not saving 30%. It's maybe costing 200 or 300 or 400% growth that they could see if they had really great people controlling that brand and that narrative. Mm, I love it. 
I could not agree anymore, especially knowing from from the consumer side and also from the in-house side, seeing the positive effects of having a team that is really working off of the same playbook versus an external team that is just maxing out on quota. And I think there's almost a negative connotation to call centers. Like people don't like getting to that point. It, well, yeah. And I think it's because companies have um, taken advantage of consumers in a lot of ways. Like they've made it the dreaded, like, oh, I've got to, you know, dial. I've got to wait on hold for 45 minutes. I've got to go through this awful phone tree. I'm going to get somebody who's going to be like rude or mean to me because they don't care. For anybody listening to this right now who's like, look, I have a call center. It's external. There's nothing I can do about it. There are things that you can do to increase the likelihood that your external team is aligned with your internal values. And again, Part of it goes back to those measurements. Part of it goes back to saying, you know, what are the things that matter and what are the behaviors that we're telling this call center operator or manager to, you know, use as the litmus test of how they uh, commend uh, employ- the, the people working in the call center. Um, recognition is another great tool. Um, acknowledgement, recognition of not just what people are doing, but who they are as individuals. There are things you can do to make someone feel great about their job. There are things you can do to help align them with the sense that there is a purpose and what they're doing does matter because they're solving problems for someone. And there's no two problem or there's no problem that's too small to be insignificant if it's framed in a way that helps somebody understand the bigger picture. Absolutely. So we talk a lot about uh, this customer support team and how they're the front line of this customer experience once somebody gets to that point. So once they are on the phone with you, you have that, as you said, direct human touch point that can make or break a super fan experience. How would you classify, like who owns customer experience in an organization? Is it because I've heard different takes. Ugh. All right. Well, here is my take. My take is that everyone is in the experience department. Every single person. The minute somebody puts on that name tag, literal or metaphorical, like they are the chief experience officer, right? They are the ones who are making or breaking that experience. It's going to determine if somebody makes their first purchase or their next purchase. So it's not just those sales and support agents, it's also the people in the marketing department, it's the people in the payroll department, it's the people in the sales department, it's the people in the IT department, it's everyone on the team. And as for who owns it, I am a huge proponent of every organization having a chief customer officer or a chief experience officer. And I'm a little bit biased. I'm the former chief experience officer of experience.com, but I know firsthand that it's important because it sends a message to everyone on your team that this matters. It matters enough that there is someone who has a seat at the table in the C-suite to say, but what about our customers? Is this the best choice for customers? I was consulting for a company, it's been, gosh, probably about a year ago now, and they were reorging and they were looking to add a chief experience officer. And they said, hey, we think we're gonna have our chief experience officer report into our chief revenue officer, what do you think? And I said, oh, I think that's a great idea. If you wanna send the message to every one of your customers and employees that experience matters almost as much as revenue that experience is a subset of revenue and you want to provide an amazing experience so long as it does not interfere with your goal of making money. So I am a huge proponent of having a C-level executive who 
owns experience, but also is comfortable with the idea that everyone owns experience. So you're sort of the accountability partner, but you're also able to tell everyone in the organization, both on your you know, reporting line and all the way down, that this is something we all have to do all the time. No, that is the shining example for everybody that is, you know, in tune with it as far as what the, where the company value lies. And I think that there's a lot of truth to the idea that like it trickles down from like top down. So it's like, if you're having distrust at the top, it's going to come down. If you're having, you know, misaligned values, it's going to come down from the top. Um, and same thing with this, which experience and making sure that you have that idea and mindset that your customer matters more than just a metric or more than just a sale. That's such a long vision beyond what I think most organizations look at when they're looking at like their year-end spreadsheet and they're saying, okay, here's where we're forecasted for next year. They don't really think about like the customer element of it. So it's great to hear that there are companies out there that do prioritize. And I know that you give a handful of examples in your book. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's so easy sometimes to tweak the technology that we have just to give us a slightly different perspective. One of the stories that I share in the book is about a leader named TJ Stennett, and he works at a company called Dayspring Pins. And they made the change recently to where so so they they do engraving for pens and other, you know, like writing office products. And many of their purchases are gifts. It's somebody ordering an engraved pen for, you know, their daughter or their parent or their colleague or their friend or whatever it is. So to them, it's very important to get things right 100% of the time, because it's not just a pen, it's a pen that is the centerpiece of a gift or an experience. It's something that they were entrusted to do for an occasion that mattered to a customer. So for the longest time, they were tracking the number of mistakes in a percentage basis. So it would be like, we were 99.7% accurate this week. You know, we had four mistakes and, you know, those, you know, the, those mistakes were like, maybe the font was wrong or the color was wrong or whatever, but they just, it was like looking at a percentage. And TJ said, you know what? Everybody's celebrating like, oh, we were 99.7% accurate. We were 98.4% accurate. But that means we mess things up for real people. So he switched the dashboard. And now the dashboard doesn't say we were 99 point whatever percent correct. It says we messed up this many times. Mm -hmm. And it's an actual number. Because saying we messed up 18 times, that's unacceptable has a very different impact on your team than saying, hey guys, we were 99.8% accurate again this week. Yay, everybody celebrate. So he switched that dashboard. It's the exact same information going to the exact same people. But now the focus or the lens is on how many people, not what percentage. And so then it's not just like, oh, we, you know, high fives all around. We did great. It's we have 18 opportunities to go make this right. Mm -hmm. Let's get in touch with those customers. Let's find out what we did wrong. Was it something that, you know, maybe isn't a huge issue, like we put it in the wrong color package or the font was wrong, or is it a bigger deal like we misspelled a name or something and go figure out how to make those right? That brings up a really important point that I would love to hear your perspective on. I've been in some companies that have 
I would say almost like a positive spin bias when it comes to reporting. Like no one wants to put forward that we screwed up. Nobody wants that in a room full of people where they're going to feel, you know, shame or, you know, like it was my fault or finger pointing. How can companies embrace a culture of being, you know, realistic and looking for these opportunities for improvement without having that like negative connotation or backlash that I think a lot of people who are in these reporting meetings are going through. Well, again, it all starts at the top, right? This is something that I saw all the time um, when I was working in the entertainment industry of like, there are some performers who think that they are the greatest in the world and they will only have people around them who confirm that belief and tell them how great they are, how wonderful they are, how perfect they are. There are others who say, I'm working as hard as I can and I know I'm doing a great job, but I also know there's room for improvement. So how can I get better? And CEOs are the same way. You have some that are like, only tell me the good news. And you have others that are like, uh, we got to continue to work because competitors could be coming for us at any moment from any direction. And I don't think I have to tell listeners which of those two I feel like win in the long run. Um, And the other thing that I will say on this note is like, Yes, people manipulate data or try to manipulate data all the time. Like how often have you been somewhere and they have a sign that says like, give us a five-star review on Yelp or give us, you know, take this survey and give us five stars. They don't say, tell us your honest feedback. Tell us what you really thought because we care about making your experience better. What they're saying is go say how great we are so that we can attract more people, not Hey, how was your experience? Because we care about you. And if something is wrong, we want to make it right. Yeah, absolutely. A thousand percent. And I feel like digital media has made such an impact in that customer experience journey. Because like you said, people can go on and give us a five-star review on Yelp or Google reviews and we'll be done with it at the end of the day. There's a lot of other inner workings for those companies that are getting that internal customer feedback, constant customer you know, responses and managing it internally without having that external force. But I do think that digital has just added a super dynamic relationship with these companies versus what they may have seen like 10, 20 years ago. What are you seeing out there in that respect? Yeah. I mean, I think it it absolutely is. It's changing everything. Like technology is changing everything about the way, the way we interact. And I think, going back to, you know, what we were saying before is like, just because something's easy to measure doesn't mean it's important. And I think that the companies who have customer centricity at their core and say, our job is to take care of our customers. And there are a lot of ways that we can do it. And there are a lot of ways that they can tell us about it. And there are a lot of ways that we can measure it, but it always comes back to our purpose is to make our customers' lives better. Our purpose is to enable our employees, to inspire our employees, to make sure that they all share this mission of ours to make our customers' lives better. And the way that that is tracked and the way that that is touted is going to change just like it has changed, you know, very rapidly over the past, you know, two decades, let's say. But it's funny, like there's this old quote that I found in a marketing uh, textbook from like the 1950s. And it was like, things are changing faster than they've ever changed before. Technology is causing things to be different. What you knew last year may not be true next year. And it was from the 50s. So things are going to continue to change. Like 
the the hows are going to change, but the why should remain the same. And as long as the why remains the same, then you're going to be in good shape. One of the biggest flex that I've seen from a digital standpoint with brands actually comes from like that, the feedback and, or the, um, oh my gosh, what is it? My brain is like tapping out, um, like referrals and the negative referrals that we were talking about where it's like, if you're word of mouth going to be hearing from a friend, like don't do this or don't say that or whatnot. I'm seeing more and more like people getting online and giving their feedback on a customer experience. And just simply because they are on TikTok and they're not even like famous or popular or have like an influencer following that's not their day job. They have the story though of a terrible customer experience goes viral and everybody's just like flooding the inbox of the company being like, make this right, make this right. How do you think that's going to play out for the next like year, two years, th- five years? Well, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch. And I think the worst thing you can do as a company is to stay silent. Like that is the absolute worst thing. And, you know, you can't like wait three days because you're waiting for the corporate lawyer to like approve all of the language. Like you have to move fast. And the longer that you wait, the more of the villain you've become in this story because you're not in control of the narrative somebody else is. So there are a lot of examples of companies sort of doing the right thing. One that comes to mind is, you know, the the story from the royal family just recently of, of, of the woman who made a racist remark and they didn't wait. They said, she's gone. And then Prince William condemned it in like no uncertain words. He was like, that was wrong. We are sorry. We are going to do better. She is no longer with this institution. So um, making quick actions and letting people know decisively what you've done and why you've done it is something that companies are going to have to get more comfortable with. And I know that the people who, you know, their job is in like, you know, risk reduction or, or things like that of like, how can we make these things like not as uh, potentially litigious? Like they're going to just have to adapt to the fact that like you have to react instantly because until you do, you're going to continue to have your inboxes flooded by those people saying like, this is outrageous, make it right. And the uh, thing about like what you said, it's not famous people who go viral. It's everyday people. And when those stories do go viral, it is almost always without exception about an interaction with a human. Mm-hmm. with a human employee who either did a great job or a terrible job. People don't talk about their meh experiences. Nobody's like, yeah, I went to Dunkin' Donuts today. It was all right. Yeah, for sure. The negative experience and the customer interface, it all comes back to that interaction that you had with somebody on the phone who made you, you know, punted you to somebody else who you also didn't have a good experience with. And it's just like, it's cyclical almost where people just get stuck in this loop and then they complain about it. And all of a sudden you're on like the front page of the news cycle for a negative opinion that you're like, whoa, 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 excuse me, wait, wait, what happened here? And when your organization is so vast and you're sitting there looking at the story that does not reflect your values whatsoever, like you said, you're going to go through all of this, you know, internal dialogue, like Balenciaga issues that just happened. And I mean, the response time and the response rate and the amount of meetings that must have happened with that just allowed for this whirlwind online to go crazy. Yeah. So what can companies do to stay nimble and stay fast, be rapid response when it comes to any kind of controversy, anything that is picking up public steam? How can they protect themselves better? And, you know, at the same time, 
also deliver better and do better for their customers? So one way is by knowing whose call it is. Like who is the one who's ultimately going to say, this is our response? Who needs to vet it? Does it have to go through legal? Does it have to go to the CEO? Does it have to go to the PR agency that you've hired? Like who is in charge? And we've seen in so many examples, both on the corporate side and, and real world examples of sort of chaos ensuing or things not going as planned when nobody's like really sure who is in charge. So you've got to make sure that you have one person who says, I am the one who says yes or no. There's no more discussion. There's no more meeting. This is what we're doing for better or worse. Um, you have to have a strong leader and that leader has to be acting in a way that is aligned with what your company's brand story is, what your company's values are. You never want to find yourself in a situation where you have to put out a statement that says what? We don't condone like child BDSM or whatever Balenciaga had to say that was oh just like so ridiculous of like, you know, you've messed up when you've had to put out like a, we don't support pedophiles statement for your brand. Oh my gosh. I know. I can only imagine the amount of conversations that were going on internally yeah. there. It must've been an absolute crapshoot. Oh yeah. I would pay to be a fly on the wall. I would not want to be in the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> So I do want to hear a little bit more, like getting back to the idea of fandom, because we have the customer experience, you know, front and center, but these super fans that are in love with brands and that will be the biggest advocate for these organizations. And even with your background in entertainment, which I feel like has really influenced a lot of this understanding as far as how to really create that emotional connection with your customers. What are some of the positives and the negatives that are out there when it comes to fandom for these organizations? I would even say like those that are amplified by digital media, social media, direct access uh, for these companies. Yeah. So I typically use the word super fan in a positive connotation, but of course fan is derived from fanatic. Um, and we have people who can certainly cross into that sort of unhealthy space. One of the real benefits of super fans is understanding that they, like, they, they don't want anything from you other than acknowledgement. These aren't influencers you're paying. All they want is to continue to feel a part of your brand. And if you can do that, if you can make them feel a part of it, they will continue to advocate for you. There's a lot of really interesting research that like the younger people are, the more likely they are to agree with statements saying fans deserve ownership in brands or fans um, should have the ability to help co-create the things that come out of the brands that they love. So they feel a literal sense of ownership over your brand. And it's like one of those things that's like, if you harness the power for good, it's great. But if you don't, like things can go sideways because those super fans who feel scorned are the ones who are going to go out there and just like burn the house down on the way out, right? So you've got to make sure that those super fan customers feel appreciated. They're not like, not hearing back from you when they're reaching out, you're engaging in like a normal, necessary way. To your point about the internet connecting them together, uh, I think what we've seen with some of the like entertainment fandoms is these people find community. They, they find a kinship in each other because they share this common interest that is a part of their lives. And it's not, it's not just for celebrities. My husband, 
uh, is in all of his Facebook fan groups of the 12-foot skeletons. You know, the, like, giant Home Depot skeletons? He was, like, so excited when he got one. And now we have, I think, three of them and all of these other crazy decorations. And it's, like, not just Halloween time. Like, ours are because I'm, like, a normal sane person. But he is constantly showing me pictures of people who, like, turn their 12-foot skeleton into Jack Skellington for Christmas. And then, like, dress him up like uh, Cupid for... Uh, Valentine's Day and like give them like giant dinosaur eggs to hold for Easter like just the craziest stuff so oh these communities gosh. and this sense of fandom exists everywhere and what I will say to brands is these conversations are going to be happening with or without you like the question is not are people going to talk because they are if they're not like you're not gonna be around very long because if customers aren't telling their friends about you like you're in trouble that means they're apathetic they don't care so conversations are happening. It's just a matter of like, are you listening to them and are you a part of them? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, you can let your husband know we've got two of them on my block. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> for Christmas time. So oh, I'm not shocked. Time. For wow. Christmas time. They're out there still. They're holding all the lights. But there are so many of these micro communities especially I would say with products for sure oh, sometimes totally. with, with services but like products it, it can get a little chaotic but there is something to be said about the group mentality within these micro communities because since they can find each other and they can relate with one another they can also like shift perspective and even with personalities or you know um, like I don't want to say celebrities but th they do exist for celebrities but also even now influencers you have like what are called snark channels are you familiar yep. with those mm -hmm. I mean it's a real thing is that you'll literally have a group of haters just sharing snark about an influencer and all these different communities can exist at the same time but these, you, you, it's just like, it almost opens itself up into just an entirely different world because like that didn't exist in the nineties, you know? Yeah. And it's changing behavior, right? It's, it's, it's changing everything. And it's almost like if you are the leader of a brand, you're kind of like a kindergarten teacher where you've got like the whole class, but you also like all the best ones are attuned to the emotional needs and wants of all of the individual children and can tell you like, oh, like Timmy's extra tired today because his mom's out of town every Wednesday night. So dad probably got him to bed late. And like, oh, Janet's like really nervous because she lost her first tooth and the tooth fairy's come tonight or like whatever it is, like those best teachers know that the best brand managers are in tune with all of the communities that together make up the ecosystem of their prospects and customers. So would you argue it's important that these brand managers know about their snark pages? Uh, 100%. Yes. If you do not, uh, I was going to say you should lose your job. That sounds mean. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> We're feeling harsh today. No, nah, you, you, you should care. The reality is uh, the, like there's a great book by Jay Bear called Hug Your Haters. And he talks about not necessarily smart snark channels, but like how the negative feedback from your prospects and customers is some that you should embrace the most and pay the most attention to because that's how you get better. And that's also how you turn somebody from someone who's like, you know, a, a dissenter out there hating on your brand to somebody who's perhaps going to change their opinion and, and say nice things about you. No, absolutely. So being the I, I'm going to call you the expert of customer experience because Please, you I'll just have, <laughs> you have such rich experience in the space, 
from a, a variety of industries too. I mean, I everyone needs to go check out your book. The amount of stories that you get into, the different ventures that you've done, like it is a fascinating, fun, informative read. And I want to know from you, how do you see the landscape of brands evolving in the customer experience world over the next decade? Like, what do you think, knowing that even from the 50s, things were changing so rapidly, from the 90s, things have changed. How, what kind of changes are we going to be seeing in this landscape in the next decade? The companies that will be the most successful are the ones that will be the most nimble, the ones who are paying the most attention to their customers and the ones who aren't afraid to innovate. And there's a difference between innovating and like chasing trends and jumping on things. Um, but innovation for the sake of improving your customer's experience is good innovation. You should never wait for your competitor to innovate, uh, to say like, oh, we'll try it out. If something is going to create a better customer experience, it is a worthwhile goal to pursue. And the companies that are going to be the most successful and the most most profitable uh, over the next decade are the ones who embrace that customer centricity, who value their employees for their unique contributions and are aligned with what it is that they can do to make the world a better place. Honestly, I'm excited for it. I think the next decade is going to be a good one. It's Let's weed out some of those weirdos. We're I'm into it. The CX decade. We'll work on a better name, but. <laughs> okay, but I like it. We're going to go into the 30s, which is absolutely crazy. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Can't even handle <laughs> it. Okay, everybody and their mother, please go pick up a copy that is out. When is it out, Brittany? Uh, it's out today. Today, today. January 10th. Creating super fans, how to turn your customers into lifelong advocates. I think you will love it. Uh, I have it on good authority that Hillary loves it, and she has wonderful taste. So I yep, do. Right there, this is treat true. others the way they want to be treated. So many good nuggets in here. So many actionable insights. Brittany, you are amazing and incredible. And it was so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Where can people find you, follow you, and learn from you? You can go to BrittanyHodak.com for all the things. All the things. And all she things. even has... I love your website. I love like the choose your own adventure <laughs> of how to learn about me. I mean, I you just are magnificent. Can't say enough good things. Oh, keep going. <laughs> you're like no 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 i'd like to see you i'd like to see you try thank you thank uh, you thank you of course Brittany. everybody go check her out and make sure that you pick up a copy of her book and give her some love she's got some amazing things to share with the world and thank you so much for coming on the podcast thanks hillary see you soon Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.